Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. You join me today in a conversation with Celine Gounder, an American medical doctor and medical journalist who specializes in infectious disease and global health. She was educated at Princeton University, John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and University of Washington School of Medicine. As of 2018, Celine practices medicine part-time while addressing her long-time concerns with health issues as a medical journalist. In 2017, because of her contributions to medicine and public health, Gounder was named one of People magazine's 25 Women Changing the World. Celine Gounder, you're very welcome to the show. We're delighted to have you speaking with me today. And I want to start with the question that I sometimes ask my guests, and that is, what is your superpower? I think my superpower is being able to tell the stories of my patients and other people like them in a way that non-medical people can connect and empathize with. How did that come about? Were you just a natural storyteller? You know, that's not where I started my career. You know, the earlier part of my career, I have a former life um, working in HIV and tuberculosis and global health, uh, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa from the late 90s up until about 2012. And um, around that time, sort of shifted gears. And I guess that shift had maybe been in process for a while towards the end of that stretch my job had been really to help translate research into policy. And so a lot of that involves how do you communicate research in such a way that policymakers understand, that affected communities understand, you know, and that other healthcare providers working in that space understand. And so that's really a, a, it's about storytelling. And What became really apparent to me was that there was a real gap between the people producing the research and then the general audiences for that research, and that journalists really were not uh, meeting that. And so that's why around 2013, I decided, you know, I am going to try my hand at this, at really being a professional journalist. And so I started off doing some television, some writing, and then later podcasting like yourself to try to get these stories and messages out there. Can you remember the first time it occurred to you that this is something that you could do that could fill a gap, you know, some piece of research that you would like to have seen go into practice if only people could understand what was being done there? I, mean, I suppose I could speak to a few instances You know, in the world of tuberculosis and HIV, some of this had to do with understanding that some of the research that's being done isn't really benefiting the populations in which the research is being done. So as an example, uh, the clinical trials of rifapentine, which is one of the newer rifamycins we use to treat TB, you know, some of the older ones are rifampin and uh, rifibutin. Um, These were being done in countries like South Africa. And because of the way these drugs are being priced, they're not even affordable. So I also became head of tuberculosis for the city of New York City at one point. And even we could not afford this drug. 
And so, you know, getting people to understand, and I think especially in the U.S., the public is really all, we, we really believe that research is everything. We really believe technological development, advancement is going to solve all of our problems. And getting people to understand that, know that that doesn't solve everything because then who can pay for those technological advancements is, is especially in our country, is um, frankly quite limited. And so, you know, that perhaps is one example. Um, another would be around the case of Ebola. So, I, you know, I actually uh, went over to Guinea as a French speaker. There was a lot of demand, or I should say need, for French speakers who had infectious disease, medical, public health training. And so I spent two months there during the epidemic. And leading up to that, also did a lot of journalism, um, you know, TV spots and, and the rest. And it was so interesting during that stretch that you know, public understanding of these issues, it was like, well, we just need to shut our borders. We invent a vaccine. We vaccinate everybody. You know, job is done. And it's so much more complicated than that. You know, we in the U.S. have resurgence of measles because we can't convince people that they need to be getting their children vaccinated for measles. So how are you going to go to a country in, I mean, right now it's the DRC, and say to them, well, you all need to be vaccinated for Ebola, a relatively new vaccine, when there are still even now conspiracy theories in the country about the origins of HIV or, you know, any number of things. And so, you know, I think helping people understand that how you communicate these things, understanding psychology, anthropology, the context, the history is so important to really rolling out any kind of health care or medical advancement. That's really sort of what was the impetus, you could say, for, for what I'm doing now. Okay. So, so you mentioned measles, which is really quite topical, not just in the US, but also in Australia. As it happens, I was interviewing for prospective medical students this week, and they all talked about, well, you know, an ethical dilemma. Everyone brings up measles and non-vaxxers and, and what, you know, whatever they call themselves. So t talk to me about that. How do we approach this issue, given the approach that you've taken of, you know, storytelling or translating information in a digestible format to the people who really need to, to accept the vaccine? You know, one of the approaches that I found really effective in West Africa um, at the time was working with imams who are very important leaders in their communities socially in terms of really leading by example and, and leading about, you know, what is it to be a responsible dutiful member of your community, somebody who's caring for your, yourself, your family, and your community. And they could cite passages in the Quran that probably are referring to smallpox or other you know, diseases of that point in time, but are really applicable to diseases like measles, um, which, you know, were also current at the time. And I think tapping into those stories, which really are embedded in these cultures and, and helping them see that these are not 
news stories. These are things that people have lived with, you know, their own families, their own, their own people have lived with uh, for generations. And then understanding their duties to care, again, for themselves, for their families, for their communities in that way, I think is really powerful. And I think what's been very interesting, so in New York City, for example, we've had an outbreak of measles among certain conservative Orthodox Jewish communities. And I don't want to say it's all of the communities. It's, you know, very specific ones. And there are a number of rabbis who've become very important spokespersons on these issues. So I think where the messaging needs to be is really in a way that's connecting with culture, with history, with context, and I think that's where some of these kinds of messengers can be very important allies. So you're really talking about opinion leaders, whether they are religious opinion leaders or other opinion leaders. I hear this view that community is very important in terms of how we approach healthcare, because community is where we can make a big difference. But for me, you know, working in, in the city of Melbourne, where there isn't a defined community, we're very transient population. How do how do we work in that arena given this approach? I do think that so I live in New York City, which is a quite a large city, but I think even living in New York City, we have a hyper local life. And so within, you know, we spend probably, my husband and I spend the majority of our time within a three block radius of our home. And yes, we, you know, we branch out out of that for certain things, but within that radius, you, you really do have a community in a way that probably people in the suburbs may not. I think that may actually be the more challenging context, but, you know, I think people are inherently social and I think one of the problems with healthcare is we address a lot of health issues uh, from the point of view of the individual. You have this disease, we need to treat you. And I think that's really missing a lot of the opportunity because people function as husband and wife, they function as family, they function as communities, as herds, you know, in, in animal speak. And so if you're not treating the herd, you're not really going to be able to treat the individual, especially when you think about a lot of the diseases of the day, whether it's, you know, I mean, a lot of these are related, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, you know, and so on. It's going to be very difficult to address these problems targeting just the individual. I mean, another way, you know, from my infectious disease background to think about it is the bacterial biofilm. Um, you know, this is a way that bacteria as a colony, as a as a group are protecting themselves. And I think, you know, and functioning as a group. And I think people, there's, there's a lot of similarity there where you need to address social norms and behaviors if you really want to change the very behaviors that drive health. Okay. So you mentioned one that's very close to my heart because I'm very interested in the, in the problem of obesity. It's a, a pardon the pun, but it's a huge problem. And not just in the US, but especially in, in a country like Australia. How do we tackle that other than on an individual level, given the problem that most family physicians who will see the patient will only see them for 5, 10, 15 minutes on a very irregular basis? I think we need to shift from the healthcare model to the public health model. 
And I think that is going to mean, uh, so, you know, one of your, your, the questions that you had sent me in advance was, you know, what is one of the most exciting things on the horizon? And I think, and this might sound counterintuitive, but in the U.S., to me, one of the most exciting things is there's a lot of support now for some form yet to be defined of universal health care and that, you know, there's so many different pathways to get to that. But I think that will finally make people realize we need to be much more conscious of the costs of waiting until somebody is sick and not investing in measures that prevent illness to begin with. Um, and, and that really means pivoting from health care to public health. And, you know, even as we are recognizing health is a right, which we, we in the U.S. still don't recognize yet, but I think we're moving in that direction. Um, and I think once we recognize that, that will force us to really think about, is this about providing health care or health and how do we achieve that? So, you know, and to go back to your question about, well, you know, so how do we address issues like obesity? I think you need to address that before somebody is a patient in your, in the doctor's office. Um, and these things need to be addressed more broadly. And I think, quite frankly, that means certain things need to be public goods. Certain things need to be provided in a way that's not profit-driven. And I think there needs to be more consciousness of that, conscientiousness of around that um, when it comes to certain basic needs, whether that's food or housing or, you know, um, any number of such issues. And I think that is where, where we need to be moving. Okay. Are you seeing movement in that direction? Have you seen, have you, have you got grounds for hope that this is the way the world will be in another 10 years? You know, I, I do think in the U.S. there's definitely movement towards universal health care of some kind, and there are many proposals as to how to get there. Some of them are basically saying, well, let's restore the Affordable Care Act, i.e. Obamacare, to what it was under Obama, and then try to figure out ways to scale up from there. There are others who are saying, well, let's provide Medicare for everybody. So Medicare for people who don't know is, is basically what the government provides everybody who's 65 and over and other very specific groups, for example, people with disability uh, in the U.S. in terms of their health care. And then there's, you know, there's other, there's all kinds of things in between. But I think what's really exciting is just the idea that at least on uh, among the Democratic um, Party candidates, that there is a recognition that the vast majority of Americans do think everybody should have access to health care. And I think that's pretty novel, frankly, in the U.S. That's not something that's been, the, you know, really mainstream up until recently. So that that's exciting. Okay. So what would you like to see happen sooner rather than later? I, you know, I think we're still very much a country where we blame people for their circumstances. And I think a recognition that some of us are luckier than others and that, um, trying to figure out how to put this, you know, that, that social determinants really are predictors of not just our health, but 
you know, our economic circumstances, our, our success in life. So much of that is about the history of our own families, um, not just, you know, what we have done in our own lives. And yes, we can all work really hard and so on, but we still are starting from a certain point that we're born into. And I think understanding that we don't start from an equal playing field and, and what that means for health and, and everything else, I think is something I would really like to see. Because I think once we realize that what we're blessed with or not is not just about ourselves and our character and our hard work, but perhaps something bigger than ourselves, I think that will change how we judge people for their circumstances. Sure. And I guess that's partly you know, reflecting back to you on the, you know, what happens when somebody falls ill. Those, those people necess- not necessarily respond to the kind of signals that are out there in terms of, let's say, diet and exercise. And then they end up clearly with a problem or uh-huh. they end up on a trajectory towards chronic illness. Uh-huh. Now, if the approach is not, the best approach is not targeting that individual, how do we target that community of people or that, or that person to stop them sliding further down the road towards long-term illness? So I, I've spent some time working on um, Indian reservations in the U.S., so with indigenous peoples in the U.S. And, and you know, I've had some of these conversations with them. So they have some of the highest rates of obesity and diabetes and hypertension in the in the country, even higher than among African-Americans. And what they have told me is when I hear a doctor tell me this is how I should eat, well, one, their response is, well, aren't you lucky that you get to eat that way, that you have that choice? I don't have that choice. I can't even contemplate affording that choice. And especially for that group, there's really a history of how their diets have shifted. And I assume there's some parallels actually with the Aboriginal population, Indigenous population in Australia. You know, in the U.S., a lot of these populations, one, were taken away from the land where they were used to growing or hunting or fishing or whatever it was, you know, certain foods that they were used to preparing. And in return, the U.S. government provided certain basic necessities as part of sort of a treaty payment for moving people off the land. And this would include, for example, flour, lard, you know, basically the foods that you would use to make fry bread and other things like that, which have now become cultural foods. But these are things that we created. And so then, and then we blame them for eating these quote unquote traditional foods, which are really foods that came out of the hardships that were imposed on them. You know, and so it's very difficult to then, it's rather hypocritical to then say, well, why are you eating these things? Because we have taken away their ability to live their traditional ways in terms of their foods and their livelihoods. We have imposed certain things on them. We've imposed, we've taken away their land. We've taken away their, the, the way they used to make a living. We've restricted their options. And then we are sort of, we, and then we ask, well, why are you like this? 
So, you know, I think, um, and I think there's a lot of parallels with African Americans. I think in some ways, it's almost even more clear to me with indigenous peoples and just historically the way that has been imposed on them because they have been so set apart from the rest of the population in many ways that those patterns are even more obvious. Yeah. So granted that you you might not say to somebody like that, why you like this, because it's evident why they might be like this, but where to from here? How do we then turn this around and stop the fried bread and the the lard and, and whatever else might actually be contributing to their problem. Yeah, I, I think this is where, again, going back to you can't target the individual. It really needs to be a, at a social level. So what works at a social level? Well, it needs to be something that you and your spouse, you and your family, you and your community want to do. And it needs to be something that's fun, that's easy, that's not too expensive, you know, so how do we facilitate all of that? You know, and and I think, I think that means, well, I mean, any number of things, but it, it means working through local social cultural institutions, which might mean working through, depending on the community, maybe a church, maybe a community center, maybe, you know, I don't know that that should be coming directly from a healthcare center or hospital, although it could be in collaboration with. But, you know, I I think it needs to feel like something that's not for sick people. It needs to feel like this is just for all of us, you know. And so I think it needs to be something that creates pride, maybe pride in your history, your culture, pride in your community, it, need, it needs to be done in a way that makes that uplifts people, not beating them down and making them feel like, oh, I have diabetes and I need, you know, I need to take insulin or I need to take all these medications and I'm a horrible, bad person because that does, that's not what's really going to encourage that kind of change. And if anything, that kind of mindset because but you really want something that's going to be adopted broadly, not just by the person with diabetes, because frankly, their cousin, their child, their whomever probably will get diabetes one day, but they don't yet. But the natural human response is to say, well, I don't have diabetes. You know, this this isn't my problem. I'm not the sick person. And so when you frame it in terms of sick, people who don't have it want to alienate themselves from that. They want to distance themselves from that. So you're right. I guess if the first stage is getting somebody to recognize that that this is a this may be a problem for them. And secondly, that the problem, the solution that you're providing is acceptable to that person. Not just acceptable to that person, but acceptable to them, to their family, to their community, to their culture, and to how they frame their themselves, the narrative that they have adopted about themselves uh, in life and in, in society. Yeah, I, you know, I think going back to what I was saying earlier, I think it's about the duty to care, not just duty to care for yourself, but it's about duty to care for your family and community. And I think once you frame it in those broader terms, it becomes much more powerful. Uh, every year, the an average pop, the population of Australia is 26 million. We have 120 million plus consultations between family doctors and and the community. 
So what piece of advice would you give uh, family doctors who will be out there today seeing hundreds of thousands of people with the problems that we've talked about? You know, I think for me, whether it's dealing with a patient with obesity or a patient who has, say, opioid abuse, I mean, I know that's a big problem in Australia right now as well, is really understanding where the patient is coming from, really understanding their story, their personal story. And this goes back to what we were talking about with with storytelling earlier is I think people are more likely to make changes when they feel like you care about them. You know, not underserved people, not, you know, whatever it is, them individually. And I think showing that you really care, um, that you know their their story makes a big difference. And so, you know, one thing I've seen, you know, as an example, working in an HIV clinic, it can take a while with certain patients maybe who, who haven't wanted to start antiretroviral treatments for years. I, you know, there are still patients like that who have been HIV infected maybe for 20 years and are finally getting so sick and everybody says, well, why haven't you been on treatment? And you're never going to get through to that patient until you really get to know them. And I think that requires a certain amount of patience and saying, you know what, I'm not going to be able to prescribe anything this visit, next visit, or maybe a couple of visits after that. And what I really just need to do is focus on getting to know this person, having them see that I care about them, that they can trust me, and that maybe eventually you know, you can, you can crack open that door. But I think for a lot of people, they feel like the healthcare system treats them as a number and what works for everybody else, they think doesn't work for them, isn't right for them, whether or not that's true or not. And, you know, it doesn't really matter if that's true or not. What really matters is how can you convince them? And the only way to convince them is, is trust and a relationship. That brings us right back to where we started. Celine Gowder, it's been an honor speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.